Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. So today we're talking in the midst of the 2016 Olympics, which are being held this year, as you know, in Rio de Janeiro. And regular people watch the Olympics, I assume, because they enjoy watching um, athletes uh, perform in competition and the remarkable displays of physical strength and skill that that um, inevitably uh, entails. Uh, designers enjoy all those things, but we also are very aware of other things, like the decisions that the producers make uh, in terms of stage setting, in terms of icon design, in terms of the graphics surround that kind of characterize each Olympic separately. Brazil has an extraordinary set of cultural traditions, musical, visual arts, everything that I think uh, uh, has a chance to inform what we're seeing this time around. And at the same time, they're actually uh, operating under a lot of stress. But I thought that the um, opening ceremonies were, for what I could see of them, pretty convincing. Did you watch them, Jessica? I was in a restaurant when they started, and so uh, I watched them intermittently over dinner uh, with, of course, the sound off because I was across the room. Uh, and then I came home and watched what I could in replay. Um, I should say that the most interesting experience for me is that my one advisee uh, for actually next year, I have this marvelous uh, young student. She's from Alaska, uh, and she is in Brazil for the summer. And she was walking along the beach in Rio and got interviewed spontaneously by, I think, a Vietnamese TV station. And in exchange, they gave her a pass to the opening ceremonies. <laughs> I think the most interesting thing for her is that the wealth disparity in Brazil, as it is in many parts of the world, is considerable. And and where the stadium is, is literally right next to these favelas. And so you, you may remember, Michael, in those opening ceremonies, there was a piece where they actually kind of did a visual gesture to the favelas. It reminded me of the, the set from Rent, the musical. It was this kind of checkerboard, colorful thing sort of, at the same yeah, time. The favelas literally overlook the stadium. So it's hard to comment, certainly it was hard for her to comment on the nature of being there at this live, very moving ceremony without seeing that juxtaposition um, as a kind of profound and I think poignant thing. They did not shy away from depicting within this sort of history of Brazil the, the fact that slavery was legal, uh, the, the effects of colonialism, all these things that I thought was really surprising and um and then at least in the broadcast that i saw the nbc commentators were, were having a little bit of trouble actually contextualizing you know it was like it was a little bit more uh, serious than they thought one of the other things that Tasha mentioned was that where she was sitting, she had a pretty good bird's eye view of everything. And when you saw the parade of nations, when you saw those athletes come out from the position that she was in, and certainly we as spectators were in, everybody is the same size. Everybody has the same amount of physical real estate on that field. And it doesn't matter if they are coming from an embittered nation, if they're coming from uh, a communist society. It doesn't matter. Everybody is there representing a country through an athletic event of which they are the champion. And, and that kind of equality rendered through the spectacle of that opening ceremony becomes a visual platform for a kind of equilibrium that I think is really very, very moving. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, that's the the dream of the Olympics, I think. And uh, every few years, it's refracted through the culture of the setting. And I think uh, when designers look back at our favorite Olympics, you know, you can look back to uh, 
Munich in 72, which of course is remembered by most people for the, uh, you know, the horrifying uh, interruption through, uh, you know, a terrorist act that actually resulted in the death of uh, uh, Israeli athletes there. On one hand, and, uh, but, all, but but you and I remember the Otto Aker posters. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Oh, it sounds terrible that that. Yeah, it was terrible, but there also was. It also had a fantastic uh, graphic program by Otto Eicher. He developed kind of the quintessential uh, set of icons that we associate with the Olympics that were just these beautiful geometrically rendered figures doing all the events. Um, everything was beautiful. And the typography U- and the posters. Oh, I'm looking typography. at them right now. They are still, I mean, here oh, it is. Oh, they're so good. They're so good. They're just as good now as they were then. Oh, I mean, the way he positions those athletes on the compositional field of the poster. I mean, the structure, oh. the tension, the composition. They are just the color sensibility. The way he does that. I don't know what that was called. A kind of a solarizing of the yeah, athletes yeah, 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 where they yeah. almost become yeah. illustrative. It is just they're remarkable even now. Yeah, they're 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 of the moment and they're timeless. And also, they're you know those posters are very much designed by a designer. And uh, there's a um, British uh, uh, designer named Mike Dempsey, who actually is an eminence Greece in London, fantastic designer in his own right, who has a blog, and he reposted a rant he had done about what he thinks is the mortal sin, the crime against design when real artists with a capital A are invited to design Olympic posters. He uh, observes, I, I think quite accurately, that, that when the real artists do them, you know, real gallery and museum artists like try to take their hand at doing posters, they just kind of do these stupid, shallow, lazy, dumb things. So, so he's given me permission to vent my own ire about these things, but uh, really, poster design, um, Toulouse Lautrec aside, should really be left to uh, the professionals, in my opinion, and none better than Otto Eicher back in 72. And what's interesting is that um, those 72 Olympics, you know, Otto Eicher is German designer, and the, the, the precision is very, very German in its character. And I think that if you compare it to the much revered 68 Olympics uh, designed by Lance Wyman, uh, even though um, Lance Wyman is a revered American designer, um, they look so Mexican to us, partly because of the color and the use of pattern, and uh, uh, they really are so rich and fresh and, again, uh, uh, undergoing a huge revival right now with the fantastic book on Wyman just out from Unit Editions, and uh, those 68 graphics have uh, uh, never looked better. Fiden uh, online, there's a nice link we'll put on our site to the Olympics as design history. It, it, that story leads with Wyman. Uh, it mentions, uh, of course, Otto Eicher. Uh, and it very deftly skirts over the somewhat controversial 2012 logo done by Wolf Olins. As you say, Michael, many of these, these identity programs for these various Olympics are linked to the culture in which the Olympic events are happening. So the color sensibility, the cultural sensibility, and this just was really a, an animal from a different planet. That logo was a very early instance of public outcry about logo design that now has become, you know, uh, de rigueur. It happens every single time. I mean, it was probably as diametrically opposed from the Munich Olympics identity as you could be. It, it, oh, totally. It, there seemed to be no underlying rigor or methodological 
uh, approach. It was it was very kind of jumpy. It had a kind of a, a you know an uneven bass line. It was colorful for reasons that weren't clear. Uh, it seemed to have some permutations where I think, if I'm remembering correctly, it was at a t designed at a time when I think we were starting to imagine how the form content relationships of an identity and its subject could mirror what was going on in the kind of zeitgeist of of the world. And in this case, they were looking to make the logo really feel kinetic. And it just felt yeah. kind of unstable. And I think that's where they, it became a missed opportunity. It was, as you say, it was one of the early ridiculed, kind of controversial design as a spectator sport moments where there was a, probably as much discussion uh, about the logo as there was about the opening ceremonies, which, by the way, were amazing. I mean, that was... That was were amazing with it. Thomas, Thomas Heatherwick, Heatherwick called Unbelievably in. beautiful yeah. uh, thing, which... Uh, well, you know, I mean, there was something interesting about that logo that uh, that I don't think was ever fully articulated. Usually designers are actually trying to do something timeless, you know, and that's like a hard goal to set for yourself. And I think that one kind of frankly acknowledged that this thing was going to have a shelf life. It was going to be completely ubiquitous during this uh, two-week period, let's say, and then sort of evaporate off the face of the earth. From that point of view, whether or not you actually like the particular aesthetic, there was something interesting about going for broke and saying, let's just do this thing that's completely idiosyncratic and just count on the fact that ubiquity and association is going to make it mean whatever it means during that period. And it doesn't have to mean anything before. And afterwards, it'll just be associated with that year, that time, those games. What do you think about the new logo, the Rio 2016 logo? Um, again, you, it's incumbent on the designers to somehow capture the essence of, uh, of a moment in time and, uh, and, in this case, a very particular place with a very particular aesthetic. And what I like about it is that it's, one, colorful. It's, two, very kind of has this organic kind of free-form geometry that I really associate with Brazil. Maybe it's just me imposing, you know, stereotypes that are too broad brush and kind of stupid onto it, but it just seems like it's organic and kind of blobby and curvy in a fun way that seems, you know, very kind of bossa nova to me. Um, you know, and then, in, and in fact, you know, the um, one of the things that I was fascinated by watching the opening ceremonies was the, uh, the shape of the stage. I was sitting with... Um, uh, with uh, my lovely wife Dorothy and some uh, uh, and some of our friends, and I, we were all saying like, is the shape? Is that the shape of Brazil? Is that like the shape of a Brazil nut? Is it the shape? I mean, we couldn't figure what the shape. And I think it's just some crazy freeform shape. There's a kind of whimsy to Brazil and to Rio that I think it captures in a nice way. It's a little bit, you know, it's got that modeling going on. It's got you know that other stuff that I'm not sure is quite to my taste, but it seems very populist and friendly, so to that degree, it wins, I think. Yeah, it's it's meant to, I, I mean, the brand guidelines are online. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, we have to link those. I've never seen those. That, that, yeah, really no, it's really interesting. It's a whole thing that talks about, you know, at, at an aerial level, you know, the, the kind of contagious, colorful energy of the Brazilian people, but then you know, it's there's a weird kind of reimagining of a loop that circumscribes the five circles. There's a, uh, a kind of a motto that has to do with, um, the, the Olympic motto is spirit in motion. And these Paralympic forms are meant to represent a Latin expression that means I move. There's an awful lot going on here they have to respond to. Yeah, I saw the um, the 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 guy who heads the agency that designed it, an agency called uh, Tatil, uh, this fellow named um, Federico Jelly, I think, 
G-E-L-L-I, presented it uh, at Design and Daba in Cape Town last February and uh, made a very persuasive case for its design, showed a lot of iterations that led up to it. It was very, very populist when they were working on it. Evidently, uh, uh, everyone in his office from uh, the creative directors to the IT guy to the receptionist all kind of contributed in coming up with it. So it sort of, and it, it does have this kind of like fun populist sort of uh, sort of thing. It also, um, th they also made, there are physical things that kind of uh, uh, 3D printed to look like the logo that are, I thought were kind of really interesting and very much of the moment. Um, I actually think that is the design icon, at least of the opening ceremonies, uh, were those fantastic um, uh, beach bikes that led each of the national teams out. I guess those are the bikes that actually shuttle supplies around on the beaches. Uh, they were unbelievable, uh, weren't they? There's a story this week I saw somewhere, I think in the New York Times, about the fact that there is no one image yet that conveys either the Trump or the Clinton campaign in the American election, which, um, of course, is, is on our minds when we're not thinking about the Olympics. Uh, but but that, you know, and obviously last uh, for Obama, it was the Shepard Ferry poster, the Hope poster. And you never know the, sa the same thing. You never really know in the Olympics if there's going to be one image that is conveyed. They, they think it's going to be the logo. They hope it's going to be the logo. But sometimes it's some incredible win of an athlete or someone cries when they're getting their medal or there is a giant beach bike at the opening ceremonies. Or Thomas Heatherwick has these trumpets that come up in the air and, uh, and become the flame, the, the eternal flame. So you just never know what it's going to be. And I think... It's hard. Designers want to create an iconic, memorable image, but sometimes it's not anything we can really control. One of the things that's been in the news lately is the controversy, some might say, about whether there is any value in continuing to teach cursive script. And I have many opinions about this, and I think it's a really interesting conversation to have here on our podcast, Michael, because for one thing, I think we have to do, uh, to quote um, Gwyneth Paltrow, some conscious uncoupling here. <laughs> we have to uncouple the nature of cursive from script, from handwriting, from signatures, from autographs, from education. I mean, so it's everything from we need to bring back cursive as a core competency for kids, the way multiplication tables must be memorized or conjugations of verbs, right? Which turns it into some rote exercise that makes every child and their parents want to stick a fork in their eye. That's one way of looking at it. But th there's many other ways to look at it. It's about the authenticity of your own personal voice, your style, your ability to express yourself. Obviously, there are huge typographic ramifications. There's a formal language here. It goes back to hieroglyphs. There's cultural ways we teach handwriting from the Palmer method in the United States to a much more up and down kind of synchronized hand-eye coordination way in Europe. And so I think it's a really big, big conversation to be had. It's not just about uh, legalizing a way to do it, but it's about a kind of an art form that might be on its way out. What do you think, Michael? Having gone to Catholic school, St. Teresa's, Garfield Heights, Ohio, and learned Palmer handwriting, uh, and never had really good handwriting compared to my mom, who just had gorgeous, gorgeous Palmer handwriting until the day she died, um, at, uh, that she learned at St. Stephen's in Cleveland, or my lovely wife Dorothy, who learned uh, beautiful handwriting at St. Columkill School in Seven Hills, Ohio. Mine, mine was always kind of crummy, but it's actually 
what I mean, what's the point of? I guess cursive handwriting is like faster. Is this? Was it, I mean, why was it even taught at all? Well, this like, is oh, is such an excellent point. And let me jump in here and tell you something that I learned this morning that I thought was really worth mentioning here. Okay, so cursive, the etymology of the word, if you speak Latin, is from the Latin cursivus, which means to run. Now, to run, and yet. When you think about handwriting, it actually slows you down. For anyone who has an iPad, the new iPad Pro, you know when you're on your keyboard, you can go from type to an emoji? Mm -hmm. Well, you can go from type to an emoji to this script. The handwriting recognition is unbelievable. I, my kids tried it. I tried it. I'll be in the middle of sending a text to one of my children, and it gives you the option with your pencil to just write. Now, what does this do? It slows you down. There's something kind of joyous in the process of slowing down. Now, again, this is not cursive. This is just handwriting. But it's the opposite of running. It's slowing you down. And people say that for students who take notes by hand, the memory retention is increased. I agree with that. But uh, these bills are really, I mean, it's become a really serious thing. In uh, North Carolina, there is a House bill called an act to require the State Board of Education to ensure instruction in cursive writing and memorization of multiplication <laughs> tables as part of the basic education program. Okay, that's sort of not for the faint of heart or the faint of handwriting. But on the New York Times, a few years ago now, there was a guy who's an assistant professor of education at the University of Southern California's uh, Rossier School of Education. He said, this is, this is hogwash. We don't need to do this. Cursive should be allowed to die. This is not about the future. And this is, from his picture, he looks like a pretty young guy. So they actually publish on the New York Times why certain why archivists think it's a cultural tradition worth preserving, why handwriting matters to handwriting experts, why even occupational therapists believe that the benefits to studying cursive go beyond writing. Now, the most recent argument, and here I have to just, I'm going to do a little shout out for this book. This book is something that every designer should read. There is a woman named Anne Trubeck. She lives in uh, your lovely state of Ohio, Michael. She's written a book that is about to be published on September 6th by Bloomsbury. It's called The History and Uncertain Future of Handwriting. She, we need to get her to the next design conference, yeah. like running, not walking. This woman has got it going on. This book, it's readable, it's funny, it's educational, it's informational. She really, I mean, she covers everything from Sumerian script to something called, I did not know this till our producer, Blake Eskin, pointed it out to me, something called paleography, which sounds like you have to do it in the basement of a natural history museum, but which actually turns out to be the study of learning to read certain scripts. And paleography is not one thing, it's many things. There's specialists. There's somebody at the Folger Library at Harvard who's an expert in uh, English secretary hand, hmm. which is what you used in the, between the 16th and the 18th centuries. So these people, I think this is, I mean, it's really nerdy. It's serious typographic nerddom, right? But she covers all of it. And it's really fascinating. Like, where is where was handwriting meant to be a way of ensuring authority? There's legal precedent for this, right? That, you know, at some point, you know, you're John Hancock in many places, as anybody who's ever opened a bank account knows, you have to sign things. Sometimes you have to sign them in person because it's easy to copy someone's signature. Again, conscious uncoupling. Script is not a signature. A signature on a piece of paper is not a signature in person on a piece of paper. So there's a really humanitarian history of why handwriting matters. And and her point is, you know, just like the, the you know, the car didn't replace the 
horse and buggy. I mean, it did, but horses didn't, you know, become extinct immediately. She says there's value as we think to the future in looking in the past and in understanding this is part of our human cultural history. The book oh, I can't really wait to fantastic. see it. And uh, but why do you think, though, that what I find really interesting is this idea that learning multiplication tables and writing in cursive script is associated somehow with kind of, I mean, it seems to actually be linked overtly by these state legislatures with kind of conservative values, as if using calculators and typing kind of are allied with unisex bathrooms and abortion. And, you know, I mean, I just, I just, I, I sort of don't get a the connection. Brilliant somehow. point. No, you're so right. Everybody has a story like you do about Catholic school. Every, I mean, I grew up in Paris where, you know, French notepaper has five lines. It almost looks like musical notation paper. But, you know, it, it actually caused you to pay incredible fastidious attention to your letter form construction because there were so many lines telling you that your uppercase and lowercase and ascender and descender didn't want to go there. But, you know, it's about more than that. It's about, I, mean, I remember a couple of years ago uh, when my children were still young enough to be going to camp, uh, my daughter wanted to write a letter to someone and she came in somewhat sheepishly and she said, where does the stamp go? Where does the address go? And this was a child who'd grown up with email and texting. And so how was she to know how to construct the front of an envelope? It's the same argument. So, you know, we don't want to, it's not like we need to teach our children to be able to, you know, write by candlelight, you know, on a scratch on a Sumerian tablet. But I think uh, there's incredible value to the study of handwriting as an expression of who we are as people. And that's what we shouldn't lose. Of of all the different options we have for typesetting, many of the most reviled typefaces are ones that are meant to imitate human handwriting. Comic Sans is probably the most notorious of them, but I mean, there's a lot of ghastly kind of fake script fonts you can get that just are so cheesy. And one of them actually reared its head uh, this past week. Apple has uh, filed what's called an amicus brief on behalf of the lawsuit they have going on with Samsung. And so all these people from uh, Dieter Rams to Paula Scher have signed on this amicus brief. And um, it's it's actually interesting reading and has been linked online worth looking at. But what's also kind of harrowing to look at is the very front. The Supreme Court of the United States is written in this like cheesy, awful, like claw out your eyes, bad, fake handwriting font that just kind of undermines everything <laughs> to me it's sort of like apple sorry i'm, I'm just gonna like you know just make a uh, uh a motion that this be dismissed just on terms of that font choice you know go back reconsider the whole thing speaking of handwriting last year design observer put together the penmanship collection it's a collection of things illustrated with pictures from antique handwriting instruction manuals like the Palmer manuals, uh, really beautiful things that, in fact, it might interest you to know, Michael, they did not actually go out of business till 1987. But these manuals showed you how to actually move your hand and do things to make your letter forms more perfect. And uh, to, to look at them now is a joy indeed. Uh, we've got throw pillows and coffee mugs, perfect for a teacher or a design student going back to school. There are scarves and phone cases and all sorts of other things, too. To find the penmanship collection, go to redbubble.com and search for Design Observer or the Penmanship Collection. 
And having some of these things around your house uh, may ward off the inspectors who will soon be going from <laughs> door to door, making sure that you are kind of uh, fulfilling your obligation as a citizen to be able to use uh, handwriting, know the multiplication tables, and all these other things that are now suddenly becoming oddly politicized. A throw pillow <laughs> from the Design Observer Penmanship Collection will fulfill your obligation in this regard. So perhaps buy one for every room of your house. You can't be too careful. So Jessica, uh, as we wrap it up, anything you've seen this uh, past couple of weeks that's caught your eye? Uh, yes, so I'm always interested in people hanging out a shingle, right? So I've got one job and I'm gonna do this other thing. I'm Design Observer, uh, co-founder and I'm going to make throw pillows. I mean, sometimes these things are quite <laughs> more, a little bit more serious than making penmanship throw pillows. I did not know this, that NASA has an art studio. Did you know that NASA had an art studio? An art studio? Yeah, so get no, this. I love that idea though. I love it. NASA has a secret art studio, the studio at JPL, and it's a group of rocket science misfits who are looking at design, looking at engineering. You know, we all see in different institutions around the world and where we work and teach maker spaces and people looking to combine skill sets in different disciplines to maybe look at other ways of being progressive. Uh, one of my favorite examples of that, as, as you know, Michael, is uh, Janine Benyus, who looks at biomimicry. You know, how can we study bird flight patterns to actually work with air traffic controllers at airports? That would be an example of a model jumping the fence. I'm guessing that these teams of scientists looking to visualize what, for example, the surface of a comet would look like is what they're doing there. So I thought this was really great. And go NASA. I mean, NASA's already doing amazing things. And now um, they're working with designers and students and engineers and creating art and trying to get the art and design scientific conversation to actually become a more robust one and I thought that was really worth sharing and excited me and I want to know more so we'll put a link to that on our site good for NASA over to you what did you see that you liked this week I've been watching for a while um a uh, guy that I follow on Twitter and, and that many of our listeners may know about named Mike Montero. He's a, uh, a designer in San Francisco, specialized in website design. He has a couple of uh, notable and beloved by many online rants that uh, you can find pretty quickly. He also has a, a couple great books, including one called Design is a Job that I like quite a bit. Um, but he also is involved with this other thing that I think is quite interesting. Now, designers often try to take their talents and put them at the service of social causes that they feel strongly about. And uh, one of the things he really cares about is gun violence. What Mike Montero is doing isn't designing a poster about gun violence or designing a T-shirt about gun violence. He is um, addressing the fact that gun sales are not allowed on Facebook. Facebook does not allow gun sales to happen on their site. Yet there are many, many, many ways that people are getting around that, often by creating uh, Facebook pages and putting up Facebook posts that are ostensibly about something else, you know, and are really actually barely concealing the fact that they're selling guns online using Facebook as the medium. And what Montero is doing in his, I'd say, in his spare time, although he seems to be doing it with a real kind of single-mindedness, is um, reporting 
these sites one after another to Facebook, sometimes repeatedly, and uh, has reported over 500 of them so far and has gotten about two-thirds of them taken down. I follow him on Twitter. He's, uh, it's at Montero, and that's M-O-N-T-E-I-R-O. And uh, occasionally he'll post about design things, occasionally post about other things, but a lot of his posts are simply about uh, uh, going mano a mano with these uh, gun sellers on Facebook. And if you want to talk about... Um, you know, a way to have direct action as a citizen, a cause you care about. It's a reminder to all of us that we are not limited to what our supposed job description is when it comes to doing this uh, kind of thing. We can just sort of like do what we should do as citizens. And uh, I applaud uh, Mike for what he's doing. And uh, regardless of how you feel about what he's doing, I think it's a great example of how each of us can actually undertake something through direct action, not just by uh, being designers, but by being concerned and passionate citizens. Looking at your file here. This is the third time in six months I had to place you. Wasn't it my fault? I posted my first seven jobs. Did you post your first seven jobs, Jessica? Absolutely not. I think this is the stupidest thing ever. I am I the only person <laughs> who thinks this stupid. is dumb? I think it's a little kind of humble braggy because it's like I came from, you know, my first job was as a, I don't know, lumberjack. You know, And everybody, of course, started humbly. Who among us did not start humbly? So it's kind of, it's kind of obvious. It's kind of tautological. And uh, let it be known that I think that whoever started this, there might be some other way that companies are going to get information about us. Oh, you used to be a busboy? Then maybe you're going to want to buy my new whatever, right? So I'm sorry to be such a naysayer, but it is my job here on the observatory to be critical. <laughs> I think it's dumb. I think you've got something to hide. What were your first seven jobs? Come on. Uh, astrophysicist. <laughs> Cupcake enthusiast. <laughs> Aspiring MacArthur. <laughs> right. Aspiring MacArthur diva. Oh, uh, tree surgeon. Okay. I don't know. I don't even know. My first well, my, my, my th I did it, and my second job was being a uh, a bellboy in a hotel. And now I realize that companies may be able to market little caps to me. There you go. That. I'm having a you vision know, of a Wes I, Anderson film. You know, Wes Anderson is coming to mind. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> like that kid. Like that kid in the Wes Anderson movie. I wish I would like to be bellboy in a Wes Anderson movie. That would be a much better job than the hotel I was at, actually. Um, yeah, and then also I sort of I just had a lot of internships in a row. They didn't make. They, I, I agree. There is sort of this kind of like um, up from nothing sort of bragging. Although one of my first seven jobs was selling shoes, and I have to admit I learned a lot about life and about. Um, the art of persuasion, selling really inexpensive shoes to people. One of my first jobs in high school, which I got through my adorable father, was working in the art department of a pharmaceutical ad agency for a magazine called Human Sexuality. And for Human Sexuality, the art director very intelligently said, you know what, I don't know how I'm going to uh, illustrate an article on goiters under the part of your pubic bone that nobody knows how to pronounce. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to have a we're gonna have a strategy. And the strategy was to develop relationships with museums around the world and just publish beautiful photographs of paintings of naked people. You know, from like the 14th century, right? So I had to call all these museums and get slides, because in those days we used slides, and find pictures of like big naked ladies who looked like they might have been having sexual problems, right? How am I going to say that in one word? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a kind of funny, interesting story. Yeah. It's visual. It's weird. It's idiosyncratic. What do I say? That's true. That's true. I mean, um, one of my job titles is intern. And um, 
I was actually an intern at a small ad agency in Cincinnati, and one of their oldest accounts was a company that manufactured a vaccine for pigs. That's sort of like for you know for hog farmers, a, a vaccine or some kind of medicine for pigs. And uh, in order, they placed like small space ads in the back of the magazines that were directed to that market. And I remember that you would get every month checking copies of both magazines or two magazines in those days that used to address the needs of pig farmers. And I think one of them was called like Modern Pig Farmer and the other one was called Pork Today. And what was great about those magazines, it reminds me of like your human sexuality uh, monthly magazine is like every, like there were pigs on the cover of these magazines. There were, all the ads had pigs. All the stories were about pigs. All the cartoons were about pigs. The letters were about pigs. The articles were about pigs. They were really sort of fantastic. And on my <laughs> list of seven jobs, that job is described as intern. And what I remember about it most Which is, is not, just... Yeah, that's... See, don't you think yeah, inquiring yeah. minds want to know more? I, I'm very happy to You're know right. that story. I'm, I'm with pig. you, Jessica. Death to these reductive things. And uh, uh, let's just have more rich 800-pound <laughs> memoirs, 1,000-page memoirs in which we can really plumb the depths of human experience. And I do mean depths in my case. Uh. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. There you can find links to everything we discussed, including Anne Trubeck's amazing book about handwriting and penmanship. Hey, and speaking of penmanship, to find Design Observer's penmanship collection, go to redbubble.com and search for Design Observer or the penmanship collection. Get those throw pillows now. If you like what you heard today, please tell your friends about the observatory or go to iTunes and rate us or leave a review. It really helps. Between episodes, keep up with designers over on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to the observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters, with Debbie Millman. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon.